Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, ADP Canada Vice President Heather Haslam has new survey numbers on how few of us actually use all our vacation time every year. BC Restaurant and Food Association President Ian Tustinson is finally feeling optimistic about his industry's post-pandemic recovery chances. First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance Chair Bob Chamberlain is concerned the Fisheries Department is ignoring its own plan to remove fish farm pens on the BC coast. And Victoria Humane Society Executive Director Penny Stone reminds us a pet as a Christmas gift is a terrible idea. So let's get started. Our next guest is now on the line and ready to talk more about uh, this new survey that suggests, well, many of us don't actually plan on using all our vacation before the end of the year. Not that there's a lot of time left in the year, but the point being is many of us actually have planned all along not to use all our allotted vacation time. This is part of a survey conducted by the people at ADP Canada. And uh, while Heather Haslam is with us, Ms. Haslam is Vice President Marketing with ADP, joining us from the 905. Heather, good morning and welcome. Thank you so much for, for having me, Sterling. I'll be very interested in hearing what um, some of our listeners have to say about this, because I'll be honest, I'm a little disappointed that um, it's not even a third of respondents said that they've already used their allotted vacation. That's not very much, right? That's that's not even half. It, it, the good news, though, is that it represents a 2% increase over last year. So more people are taking their allotted vacation, but it's nowhere near our pre-pandemic figures. Well, let's talk about that because the pandemic, first and foremost, Heather, really altered everyone's behavior and it lasted a couple of years and it really threw a lot of us off our game. And part of the game for many of us was blowing town every chance we get. Well, if you can't go anywhere because you're not allowed to, well, then you, you improvise and you take a day off here and there and so on. But pre-pandemic, what were the numbers like before? all of this stuff knocked us off our game? So pre-pandemic, 48% of Canadian workers said, yes, I've used 100% of my time. And so we're, we're down to 29% wow. at this point. So we certainly have some room to improve, at least to get back to the levels prior to COVID hitting us. Well, here's the other really weird part. And this is I'd like your comments on this one, too, because this is an interesting finding of the survey as well, Heather. And it's it's this whole business of, well, I I am taking time off. And I guess I guess I'm supposed to feel guilty about that because before I leave and after I come back, I'm going to log a whole bunch of extra hours. Call that guilty time for the company, I guess. But We do that. Why? We do that. We've started to measure over um, a number of years this idea of the time off tax. So this is the amount of time measured in hours that people have to put in prior to and returning from vacation in order to take that time off. Right. So that's extra work that they're doing. And so um, we, we have some good news on that. Okay. So um, nearly a third of workers actually reported that they didn't have to put in any extra hours before taking a one-week vacation. Mm-hmm. So that's good news. But those that did um, have to pay this time off tax, they clocked an average of 20 hours of extra work in order to prepare and return from vacation. Now, I think it's good news only because when I compare it to last year's number, it's, it's an hour less than last year. So mm-hmm. we're putting in a little bit less. 
But yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, working Canadians are are putting in this extra time. I, I like to say that they did get a little bit of a tax cut because because it's reduced, but it's a lot of extra time in order to take that really important time away from work. Mm-hmm. And and you know some people choose careers, for example, that offer uh, considerable vacation blocks uh, because uh, of they cherish their time off and they have another life that well they go traveling or whatever. But most working Canadians, do you have an average, by the way, Heather? I'm thinking somewhere like probably an average of three weeks per working person. Is that kind of a national average of how much time we actually get per year? You know, and from a survey perspective, we didn't um, ask that question because it varies so much Sure, yeah. Um, by industry and by level. And what we're really trying to tap into is, are you taking your vacation and how much extra time are you having to put in? What we do know, though, Sterling, is vacation is really important. Mm-hmm. When employees actually take the time to relax, and distance themselves from work, they come back feeling refreshed and recharged, right? This actually impacts our wellness, both professionally as well as personally. And from a work perspective, you know, if I take breaks, if I actually disconnect and take my allotted vacation, it decreases the risk of burnout. And we think that it actually increases engagement as well as productivity. It's really important that people take their time. You're right. And burnout is is truly a, a factor these days. And again, with pandemic, uh, and, and we're still sort of coming out of that. And a lot of people are still, there are many of us, Heather, who are still sort of starting to emerge and mixing and going to a hockey game or an event which features a lot of people or even going out to a restaurant. That's still a challenge for some. So uh, again, coming out of the pandemic uh, and, and re-engaging our, our behavior. Behavior. I was curious one one of the other aspect of all of these working Canadians. If you work in a union situation where you have a firm contract that specifies you get X days per year, are you in that environment more likely to take your full allotment than if you're working in a non-union situation? It's a good question. Again, the, the survey itself didn't split uh, unionized working Canadians versus not. So right. I don't, I don't really uh, know what the answer is. We can certainly surmise. But touching on that point that you made around returning, right, actually getting back out into the world, mm-hmm. um, one of the questions that we did ask is around, you know, taking time off. And 15% of the respondents said that they did take more time off as a result of the travel restrictions easing this past spring. Right. So at least the, 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 the travel restrictions and some of the mandates um, to, you know, help, help manage COVID-19, um, some of that easing actually did impact people taking vacation. One of the things that I think was very interesting that came out of this, though, was around staycations. So similarly to last year, most Canadians, so 69% of Canadians, are not traveling during this holiday season, mm, okay. which is actually a 7% decrease from last year. And there are a number of variables. When we dove into the why behind that, over half of respondents said that current inflation levels have affected their holiday travel plans. Yes. So that uh, so it comes down to costs, among other factors, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. What we do know, though, is even if you're not traveling, even if you're not hopping on a plane and heading somewhere sunny, it's really important for people to 
take their allotted time and actually disconnect. So, you know, a lot of advice for employers, for those, for those listeners out there who are people managers, you know, we need you to be really vigilant and make room for employees to take the time off in order to avoid burnout. Mm-hmm. We need people to be, you know, reinforcing that they understand that time off tax, that the time off isn't actually going to negatively impact their performance ratings, right? They're, they're not going to have a, um, a less of an impression of a, of a perception because they've taken that time off, as well as people need to be reassured that they have coverage, that teams are properly resourced to ensure that when people do take the time off, there isn't this pressure to check in and keep working um, while, they're, while they're actually off. So we really need people to be more flexible around offering vacation time and encouraging people to take uh, the vacation and disconnect. And, and I need role models. I want to make sure that you're going to take vacation as well, Sterling. Oh, you count on it. Absolutely. Never a problem getting me to jump on a plane and go somewhere hot and dry when, it, when it's due. But I wanted to get back to the guilty quotient there for a moment because you talk about now what, com- what companies can do to ensure that their employees, A, take their allotted vacation time and feel good about it in the process. And a lot of you talked about people logging extra hours. I couldn't possibly go away and not have all of this two weeks worth of preparation done. So while I'm away for my two weeks, all of this stuff will fall into place and I can relax and people won't be bothering me. All of that stuff, that's that's company support. That's what you were talking about. The team will support you in your absence. So maybe a, a little easing off on, on the prep and post-vacation extra hours. Exactly. It's really important for um, employers senior leadership, any really people leaders to create an environment where it's easy for employees to take the time and truly disconnect. And there are a number of things that people can do to support that, right? That's making sure that there is coverage, that people understand what are the things that are going to wait and what are the things that are going to be continued on in your absence. Um, Ensuring that um, that negative that, that concern around the performance impact, you know, that idea that I'm going to be negatively um, perceived because I actually take my vacation is really important. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's default to being role models, right? We all need to, um, especially as people leaders, take our allotted time and actually disconnect. I pride myself on the fact that I'm really good at vacation, that I take it and I actually remove myself. Right. I trust in the team. I trust that um, that coverage is there. And that, that's important because it creates a culture where there's recognition that the better balance I have, the better employee I'm going to be the better manager, the better teammate, and actually at home, right? The the better wife, the better mom, the better friend, the better daughter. All of that is um, is really critical in terms of being a role model. Mm-hmm. No shame in taking your allotted vacation time. The new poll finding Canadians not doing so. 29% of us. That's a pretty low number. Uh, we find these numbers today courtesy of our guest, uh, Heather Haslam from ADP Canada. Heather, great uh, for you to join us today. Interesting conversation. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so kindly for having me, and I uh, I hope that you actually get that vacation in and do disconnect, Sterling. I absolutely will. I do not check emails when I'm on vacation, Heather. Oh, Promise. You're a wonderful woman. <laughs> 
Well, you know, we saw this headline about six weeks ago in business in Vancouver. Quote, Vancouver corporate parties and event bookings soar. So this is uh, early November, the article comes out, and I, f- I found myself just extremely relieved to see such a headline, given the fact that the hospitality and the restaurant business in our town and pretty much everywhere in our country has taken an absolute pounding the last couple of years. It was a pleasure to see something positive. Uh, also a pleasure to welcome Ian Tostenson back to the program. Ian is president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Ian, good morning. Welcome back. Hey, Sterling, nice to talk to you. And uh, I think the only thing grim right now is the weather coming because, as you said earlier, um, it's, it's a lot better now than it has been for, for several years uh, in our industry right now. It sure has. And you and I have had some pretty tough talks on the radio yeah. over the last couple of years and, and some yeah. very unhappy conversations. And, and, you know, it was just it's been a tough time. And now we do know, Ian, that as the hospitality and restaurant industry uh, pivots to uh, reopening, uh, the one problem they uh, seem to all face commonly is a labor shortage, which is kind of a nice problem to have unless it's a really severe labor shortage. What's the story on that these days? Well, <clears throat> the industry employs about 200,000 people, and we estimate that we're about 14% short of where we were prior to the pandemic. So we're short mm, close to 30,000 people. Mm. And prior to the pandemic, we were short maybe two-thirds of that. So we've always had a shortage, and that's a demographic issue in British Columbia. It's a demographic issue, frankly, everywhere because people are retiring, leaving the workforce, Admittedly, some people left our industry and because we were inconsistent employers for you know, a number of months uh, during the pandemic. A lot have come back. And so there's a couple of things that we're addressing right now is, is a call out. And I think you'll see more of this in the new year is restaurants are a great place to, uh, as you know from your own kids, uh, Sterling, they're a great place to cut your teeth, get business experience, work experience flexible working experience, make some good cash. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, pressuring the federal government and the provincial government to make labor shortage a priority and to accelerate the skilled foreign worker program. Because, you know, not unlike 100 years ago where we relied on immigration in Canada, not just for restaurants, but right across the board, we need to do that. Our economy is just choked when it comes right across the board to labor. So, you know, but we're dealing with that. I think it's pretty faceless when you walk into a restaurant. So <clears throat> the business is strong. Um, our Christmas bookings are strong. Good. People are, have got uh, an undeniable desire to go out and be social. I mean, and they may not be spending, you know, they might be spending a little bit less, but they're going out. I mean, my son was out last night. They got over eight people, and they just they couldn't wait to get out. So we haven't satisfied that sort of social need to, to gather and, and, of course, if you remember last year, I mean, the whole thing was muted. We were still in masks and we were still in vaccination cards. Mm-hmm. And a lot of companies, for liability reasons, canceled Christmas parties. Uh, Christmas parties this year are interesting. They're, a lot of them are stand-up receptions. And it says what it, it sort of underscores what I was just saying is that people want to go out and want to meet, but they want to have a stand-up reception with their d'oeuvres. And they can move around and be mobile and go and talk to Sterling and talk to this person, that person, mm-hmm. and hands and be social versus being stuck at a table. So that seems to be the trend right now. And everybody's feeling, you know, everybody's feeling really good about where we're at right now. And, and hopefully, you're, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, hopefully we can continue this momentum into the new year, despite, you know, the sort of um, uh, the, the issues around the economy right now. 
I still think that pent up demand is going to hold us through until it stabilizes a bit better. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and you know, there's also, Stan, and we talked about this uh, earlier when we were talking about uh, vacation time with our, our guest uh, from Toronto yeah. and ADP and, and how Canadians, how, how many millions of working Canadians do not take all of their available allotted vacation time on an annual basis, which still is baffling to me, but that's Canadians. <laughs> uh, but, you know, t- just in terms of, uh, of the, the way employees, in the hospitality and specifically the restaurant business have been treated historically. A lot of people left the business, as you mentioned, during the pandemic, and some of them didn't return because they found a job that treated them better in terms of more reliable hours, predictable benefits, and those sorts of realities that most working Canadians cherish. And in the restaurant business, some of those have been hard to come by. Has the restaurant business learned any lessons regarding treating its employees a little more well, more in a more civilized way. You know, I, you're right on with that comment. I mean, the you know, pandemic, it was, you know, in, a, in that era, pre-pandemic, lots of, there lots of people around, and, and you didn't sort of think about your HR policies long-term. You felt more about, i got to fill the room tonight with staff right. to handle this. But now we're talking about, if you go to our website, and um, you'll see a lot of the materials that we, we produced are all around HR and all around work-life balance. And, giving people recognition and giving people um, uh, resources to better themselves and take courses because we recognize that, you know, in the event and sometime in our future it will happen again, um, you want to have loyal employees that go, you know what, I work for Sterling and, I, and I'm and i covered. I mean, we're talking about health care, mm-hmm. work-life balance. We see a lot of managers in restaurants right now um, that are saying, I don't want to work five days a week, I want to work four days a week just for work-life balance. And I'll take less money. Thank you very much. I love my job, but I want to, I want to do that. So we are being much more accommodating. The, the HR person we have in our staff uh, is busy full-time trying to chart out those added value environments for people to work in. Good. And I think it's going to serve us well. I, I really do. I mean, we, you know what it used to be uh, is, oh, no, the, the minimum wage is going up. We can't handle that. Now it's like we're so far beyond the minimum wage in terms of what we pay right now. And we're just figuring it out, uh, and we're figuring out that I think that we're headed for more career-minded people as a core group in our industry than ever before, and that's a good thing, frankly. It is indeed, and Ian, as more and more of us get more comfortable with gathering and mingling and just emerging back into the mix, it bodes really well for a 2023 turnaround for the Vancouver and BC restaurant and hospitality industry, and boy, I think we've earned it, don't you? Well, I do. And the big message we have this year is going to be for governments to tamper down and work with us like they did during the pandemic and, and start and not go back to their old ways of, you know, red tape and bureaucracy and silly programs and stuff. they got to leave us alone, let us do our thing. It's going to take us a couple of years to get you know back solid. But uh, that collective effort we had during the pandemic, that's the only way this economy is going to win. So that's our theme for 2023. All right. Well, have a great uh, Christmas season, Ian. Great to talk to you again just before we get into the real busy stuff. And I look forward to our first chat of the new year already. Me too, Sterling. You take care, too. Joined on the line by Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance, here to respond to a couple of headlines this week. Headline one, Ottawa aims to reduce the size of the salmon fishing industry by buying licenses. Headline two, is the fish farm transition process going off the rails? Bob Chamberlain, good morning and welcome back. 
Good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you. And there's one thing in that announcement by the federal government. They're offering to buy Pacific salmon commercial fishing licenses for those looking to get out of the industry as they try to, in their words, protect the fish that remain. I'm I'm skipping through the announcement. And and here's the part that I don't understand for your comment. About 700 licenses, I'm quoting here from the Times colonist in Victoria, about 700 licenses issued to First Nations on behalf of their community qualify for this program. This is the Communal Commercial License Program. It allows the nations to voluntarily exchange those licenses for funding and access to a different fish. That's the part I don't understand. What does that mean, Bob? Well, with uh, the Pacific Integrated Fisheries Initiative, or PICFI, First Nations established community fishing enterprises where they received licenses for uh, commercial activities. And some of them, of course, are salmon, some of them are prawns, some of them are cod. Okay. But, you know, the thing is now you can see, because I've read, you know, some of the, the articles that, that you've read as well, where they acknowledge the crisis of salmon in British Columbia. And so what they're doing is they're allowing First Nations to be able to move from harvesting that species to another commercial fishery. But what I find problematic is the fact that they acknowledge on one side of a coin that there's something seriously going wrong with uh, salmon in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Yet on the other side of the coin, they're still looking to perpetuate, like fish farms as an example, to uh, continue the impacts that that represents to something that they already acknowledge is in crisis. It makes no sense at all. So this is the other headline then, is the fish farm transition process going off the rails? Because it seems with this, now this is all part of the $650 million that you and I have talked about several times on this program, announced last year. It's their Pacific Salmon Strategy budget from which a couple of hundred million will be set aside to buy back licenses and, and gear and uh, in, in some cases, I guess, boats. But um, it, it, what is that? It seems that that is now the new shiny object to distract our attention away from the fact that there seems to be very little, if any, movement on transitioning open pen fish farms to closed contained ones. You are absolutely correct. When you take a look at the Liberal government's commitments to transition fish farms from the ocean, it began three years ago in 2019. And since then, we've not seen transition. We've seen lots of, you know, reports. Uh, now we're engaged in a transition planning process that when, you know, on the face of it, it sounds like it's living up to the commitment to transition fish farms from the ocean and ensure there's protection for wild salmon that they acknowledge are in a crisis state. Right. But when you tear apart and study the, uh, the transition framework, you'll see that there's status quo written throughout the whole document. And where they want to have a dual stream of licensing, which, of course, means the existing licensing regime would continue. And, you know, they won't issue a license unless they're going to be able to have a full grow out for the fish farm industry. So what we're looking at is a minimum of two, four years of status quo while they develop and implement the the second stream based upon the same failed promises of the DFO. And it is just it's. It's so tragic when we think about the iconic species that salmon is for this province and to see a federal department that's still willing to um, abdicate their authorities and turn to industry to lead the transition, leading it up to industry to choose which one of these licensing streams that they may wish to see. And the whole process 
is got a built-in status quo outcome, which I think Canadians de- deserve much more from a department that's primary responsibility is look after the environment and wild fish. Indeed, the current uh, fisheries minister is Vancouver MP Joyce Murray. The previous minister, Bernadette Jordan from Nova Scotia, was on this program, I guess, a couple of years ago now, Bob, very solemnly committing her ministry to the transition pen, uh, uh, the transition pro- process for uh, open pen uh, fish farms to close containment land-based fish farms by 2025. That was her commitment on this program how close is dfo this morning to being able to to hit that target well i don't see them actually making a transition of the farms because what we're seeing is that they want to develop a more stringent regulatory environment which will incentivize industry to willingly become land-based closed containment Mm. well when you're talking to companies that make millions and millions of dollars of profit from their existing operations, they're not going to want to do that. So again, we're seeing the DFO turning to the industry to lead to, you know, somehow magically um, realize that their current operations are detrimental to wild salmon and willingly become another form of industry. There is no thou shall found within the documents. And of course, we have to be mindful that the DFO has nine science risk assessments that say everything's okay, you know, fish farms are less than minimal harm. Mm -hmm. But when you start to examine the CSAS process, you see industry domination throughout the entire process. And then you see scientists inside of DFO that have a paper uh, called the Challenge Study that identifies heart lesions and so forth that are representative of diseases. And yet when they do a, a risk assessment for CSAS, they say there's no problem. So they're contradicting their own work. There is no reason Canadians should have any faith in the nine science risk assessments of the DFO because it's all uh, heavily influenced by industry and status quo is the way that they want to go. Sure. So what is the official position of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance, of which you are the chair, Mr. Chamberlain, with regards to the shiny object of distraction, the buyback program? Well, the buyback program is going to be beneficial in the short term but it doesn't address the long-term reliance that the Wild Salmon Alliance members have on wild salmon. Many of the uh, Wild Salmon Alliance members are from up in the interior, and they don't have these kinds of licenses available to them in the first place. Right, yeah. But in, on the, in the end of November, the Wild Salmon Alliance hosted chiefs from across the province. We had uh, Minister Murray, her new deputy minister, the regional director general, uh, Lisa Marie Barron, the NDP fisheries critic, attended. And they heard unequivocally that the First Nations across this province oppose fish farms. It's a food security issue. And when we think of that, food security is a very key component of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. So how can the Prime Minister commit to implement the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People without embracing the fulsome approach for food security across the province? Now, the Wild Salmon Alliance and our press release and, and other venues, we've, we've asked for a meeting with the Prime Minister, and I guess we're going to find out uh, where reconciliation, where the rubber hits the road, whether the Prime Minister is willing to meet with a group of uh, leaders from across the province that actually support the goal that his government has stated, 
or will he capitulate to an industry that provides minimal jobs across the province? Interesting. Well, there's and there it is. Uh, there it is. We'll, we'll just be on standby, Mr. Chamberlain, until you receive word from the Privy Council office or the PMO as to whether that meeting will ever take place. Thanks for this this morning, Bob. And, and I want to take an oppor- this opportunity because you've been such a regular and solid contributor to this program for so long to wish you and everyone in the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance a wonderful Christmas holiday season. And I look forward to our first conversation of the new year already. Well, thank you very much, Sterling, and I wish you and your family and all your colleagues at at the radio station there the best for the holidays and stay safe and stay warm. Joined on the line from Victoria by Penny Stone. Ms. Stone is the executive director of the Victoria Humane Society, here to talk to us about pets as Christmas gifts. Penny Stone, good morning and welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. Now, it's it's important to point out that even though you're not a big fan of uh, pets as Christmas gifts, and at the same time, you run the Humane Society in Victoria, you've got lots of critters that you would love to see homed permanently, but maybe Christmas is not the very best time to do that, especially if there's any element of surprise involved, right? And I think it's surprise that's the problem here with Christmas, like pets at Christmas. And obviously, things like lots of kids, lots of... um Lots of stuff going on in the morning, lots of stuff going on Christmas morning. What happens then is you see, like, there's so much going on. There's so many things happening that the animals can can get overwhelmed. But what we like to see is people, this is a 15 to 20 year commitment. So what we want is to people to choose an animal that's the right animal for them. Right. And when you're surprising someone, it's like, if you get them the wrong sweater, that's okay. But if you get them the wrong pet and it's a 15, 20 year commitment, that's a really bad idea. So, and like you said, we have over 200 animals right now in care looking for homes and we would love them all home for the holidays, but we want to make sure they go to homes where it's going to be right, where it's going to be the right fit, where people are going to have the time, where it's not the craziness of, I mean, everybody loves how crazy Christmas morning is when the kids get up and open all the presents and oh, everything's yeah. crazy. Like we all love that, but a new pet to the family, that's horrifying, terrifying. It's, you know, it, it's, so bad for them. So it, it's not a time for them to be able to adjust properly. So we don't want to see that. Penny, you have over five dozen puppies alone mm-hmm. right now in the Victoria Humane Society shelter. Are people coming in and looking at those puppies and talking at all about them as a potential Christmas gift? And what do you do? What do you do if your people hear that conversation? So what happens is all of our puppies are in private foster homes, so people can't come see them, which is very helpful. Okay. But people show up every day asking for a puppy or a kitten. The big one going right in, around right now is everybody's looking for white kittens for Christmas, which I've never heard of before, but it's a thing this year. Okay. So people are coming in all the time, and it's, it's a good time to have an educational talk with them about how bad that is and, and what you should be doing. I mean, if we all think of the Hallmark moment where they open the box under the Christmas tree and a puppy or a kitten and pops out wearing a beautiful bow. But like most Hallmark movies, those things really don't happen. <laughs> what, what happens is you have a terrified animal who, you know, there's just so much going on. Having said that, a lot of people are off over the holidays. Yes. And so for some people who aren't having a big Christmas or there's no kids involved, they're just like staying at home over the holidays, it's a good time to get an animal in and get it settled. So it's really about the gift and the surprise gift that concerns us. Like, you know, if your husband and wife go and, and they 
find a puppy they want and they adopt that puppy and the husband gifts that to that. That's a different kind of thing. Like you're together, you're figuring that out. But I mean, and puppies especially, puppies are a ton of work. And with all the, oh, people always phone us afterwards and go, I know you said it was going to be a lot of work, but it really is. And I'm like, yeah, it's like a new baby. So, you know, people have to think about that and be prepared for that. And the other thing people miss out on is at Christmas, there is so many things that are poisonous to animals that are around or that are dangerous. Mm. Like, so the Christmas tree, all the, you know, if they knock the tree over and everything breaks, all the, all the ornaments, but lots of plants. Like, most people know that poinsettias and lilies and daffodils are poisonous for animals. But lots of people don't know that holly and mistletoe are even more poisonous. So, you know, if you're going to have an animal around, and especially a new one, and it's chewing on things, a puppy or a kitten, those are the things you have to think about. So it's really important people are aware of all that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's always the kitten who tries to climb the Christmas tree because it is so completely freaked out. It's, it's going to find height and safety, and eventually the whole thing comes crashing down. I have a good friend who has taken their Christmas tree down already because they got a new cat, and it was a cat, not a kitten, a month ago. So they've taken their Christmas tree down because it's tried to climb it so many times. Yeah. So, you know, it's something to be aware of, that there's a lot of potential dangers out there. And like we said, we'd want them all home for the holidays. It'd be lovely if everybody's in a home, you know, they're forever home for the holidays. But the reality is we want to make it a home that's going to last a lifetime for that animal. So we want to make sure it's the right home and not a surprise. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind, Penny, in the remaining minute or so we've got left. And that's just this whole post-pandemic letdown, if you will. A lot of us were isolated Uh, completely cut off or virtually cut off from the world. And we decided to go get a little furry pal to kind of hang out with and get us through whatever that was called. Uh, Isolation. There's a kind word. Uh, And now now a year or two later, we're kind of re-emerging into the old groove and uh, finding our friends and our life and our feet underneath us. And, well, the animal may not be as much of a crutch uh, emotionally as it once was. So in some cases, they're going back to the shelter. And that's got to be a heartbreaker for a lot of people and to say nothing of the creatures involved. It has been horrifying. I've never seen anything like it, and I've done this 20 years. Like, after everybody went back to work, the amount of animals that were, like, people called us about to surrender that, you know, they got it from these pop-up breeders and from, like, every, you know, had them flown in. It was it was crazy. We were getting calls, and these animals are coming into us unsocialized, un, you know, like, they have, they know nothing, mm-hmm. untrained, unsocialized. And those are really hard animals to place. And we have, you know, some of them we have for months. We even have one, you know, we've had for six months because it was so let down by the people who got it during COVID. So it's been really hard. Um, we've gotten to a point where we've had to say no to taking back, taking in some animals. We always take back our own, but to taking in some owner surrenders that they got from breeders just because we have no room. Yeah. And so it's it, really sad. Yeah, it is. It is. And again, back to your original point, uh, a pet as a Christmas gift is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea as a surprise gift, Christmas gift. Absolutely. Well, it, it's uh, it's uh, that's why we turn to the pro to hear about that. Penny, thanks, <laughs> thanks so much for this, and Merry Christmas to you and all the gang at Victoria Humane. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you too. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.